welcome to another radiant episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza. This is a podcast where we explore all aspects of medicine and give you an idea of what to expect in different specialties. I'm your host, Lily. Today we're talking about the very exciting, very excellent anesthetics, the art of gas. And so on the show we have with us an anesthetist, 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 anesthetist. Thank you. That is Dr. Marie. Marie-Louise Troy. To be exact. Welcome on the show. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Great to have your wisdom and excellent pronunciation. So can you start off by telling us what anesthetics is? Okay, so anesthetics is actually a very limited term to describe what we actually do. Anesthetics literally means without sensation, um, which is part of the deal, but it's only about 10% of it. So what's the other 90% if my math is correct? Yes, correct. Uh, The other 90% is actually looking after the patient's physiology and keeping it normal despite what the surgeon or other proceduralist is doing to that person. Ah, Does that mean most of your time will be in the theatre? Yes, it depends. Um, The job here essentially involves obviously theatre time. We also do a lot of out of theatre work in radiology. Uh, the cath lab, um, I think they're our main oh, endoscopy, of course, that's kind of um, an add-on from theatre. Uh, we also do run a clinic, and we run clinics every day, and some days twice a day in the morning and the afternoon. Uh, the other thing that I would do in this job is administration, so I'm responsible for the on-call roster, for the first on-call people and also I'm an anaesthetic coordinator so that means that um, there's actually a team of us so there's somebody here every day and we essentially make sure that there's someone doing every list or everywhere that we are required. It sounds like there's lots of little bits to your job so let's tackle them one at a time. What about the clinic? Is that pre-admission? Yes, that's um, yeah, pre-admission clinic so not everybody will come to pre-admissions Uh, In general, we see most people who we would consider um, need some kind of workup or need to be seen. That's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes people are pre-admission bypassed um, because they're actually nursing home residents and can't get here or they live somewhere else in New South Wales and can't get here. So it's not necessarily that they're fit and well that they bypass clinics. But in general, we see most people that need to be seen. And I can imagine that's a a bit of a responsibility because not only is it, you know, with or without sensation, anaesthetics in a sense is deciding life or death because if someone's not suitable for surgery and they go to surgery, well, that's a big deal. So how do you make sure you're you're making the right decisions? We very rarely knock people back from surgery. Uh, In pre-admissions, we might suggest that people have further investigations before they come to surgery. The most common thing will be um, if they have some kind of cardiac dysrhythmia that's otherwise not known about, or if they have ischemic heart disease that's not well controlled, or in fact maybe new. We occasionally have people who present with a new um, left bundle branch block, for example, and a year ago they didn't have it, so we think in those cases they probably need to see a cardiologist quite often when we spot these people in the clinic, they'll end up having an angiogram and uh, sometimes 
end up having their surgery delayed for over a year because they now have stents. Wow, okay. All right. And is it ever a subjective thing or is it very objective? No, it's entirely entirely objective. It's entirely objective. Okay. So it's a a process that everyone just follows to make sure you get the the correct result. Is that that correct? Correct. Okay. All right. That that is very comforting. Now, what about the other side of it, the theatre side? What happens there? Uh, Okay. So essentially when somebody turns up for theatre... whether they're an inpatient or an outpatient, they will have been seen by us beforehand. So we know what's what's coming in the door. Uh, we generally set them up in the anaesthetic bay. In some theatres, for example, the ortho-trauma theatre, they'll often be anaesthetised in the bay. But uh, in general, they'll get a cannula. The anaesthetic nurse will put them on basic monitoring. So basic monitoring is oxygen saturations, ECG and blood pressure. Some people require more intensive monitoring. For example, um, they'll need an arterial line where we put a cannula into the uh, radial artery, usually, and um, monitor their blood pressure every heartbeat. So it sounds like there's a lot of hands-on sort of work. There are some specialties where when you get very senior in that specialty, you might not have to do cannulas or do anything anymore. No, anaesthetics. No, one of the things that I really like about anaesthetics is that you get to use your hands and your brain every day. Exercise all bits. That's yes. excellent. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's sort of the setup for the surgery. What about during the actual operation? What do you do? Uh, it depends a lot on what the surgery is. Uh, we do a lot of intensive surgery in this hospital. A lot of high-end cancer stuff. Mm. Um, we don't do much sort of peripheral things that don't insult the body too much, like hands. But um, occasionally. Uh, I think probably the least insulting things that we would do in this hospital would be things like varicose veins, close reduction for arm fractures, in which case there's not a lot of anaesthetic involvement. You are there looking after the patient the entire time and monitoring them the entire time, but that's not a huge insult to the body. Major cancer surgery, heart surgery, neurosurgery, obviously they're a huge insult to the body sometimes big obstetrics cases as well can lose a lot of blood that is a big insult to the body um, in that, those kind of cases you're actually very involved the whole time so what you're aiming to do is to keep somebody's physiology normal despite what is happening to them so if they've lost their entire blood volume then you're working very hard to replace it if the uh, surgery involves major abdominal surgery like a peritonectomy, there are immense fluid shifts and blood loss throughout the entire procedure. So you're actually on your feet the whole day mm. doing things. You very very rarely get um, downtime. We can just sit there and look at the monitor, the kind of cliche, I guess. But um, in fact, you're actually measuring stuff all the time. So those big kind of operations, as well as an arterial line and basic monitoring, you'll have... Um, a central line where you'll be monitoring CVP as well. Uh, you'll also take regular blood tests, um, gases, and you act on whatever those results are. So quite often you need to give potassium infusions, magnesium infusions, calcium infusions. Um, you're maintaining electrolytes as normal as possible. You're um, maintaining the blood blood count, so hemoglobin as normal as possible, platelets. So you're monitoring coagulation. Uh, blood sugars, and acting on these things for the entire duration of the surgery. Obviously, if the surgery is going for more than 12 hours, that's an extremely intense day at work. 
Wow. You mean one surgery can yes. get 12 hours? Yes. Wow. A peritonectomy, for example, the long I've done them, we do them regularly, I don't do them anymore, but the um, longest one I've done is about, I think it was about 15 hours. We finished at 11 o'clock. And so you didn't switch throughout, it was just no, you for 15 hours? myself and a registrar. Wow. The anaesthetic nurses shift, don't worry, they, they <laughs> left. I was, very, I was very jealous. So if you um, aren't used to doing anaesthetics and yeah. you want to work in a tertiary hospital, yes, it's endlessly interesting because you're involved in interesting things all the time, um, but you would need to be aware that you may be at work for a very long time. Sometimes 24 hours. You can wow. be at work for 24 hours. Um, it's not common, but it would probably happen maybe two or three times a year. Wow. And with those extremely long operations, how do you go to the bathroom? I mean, oh, you've you got two of you. No, 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 okay. no. You, there's yourself and a registrar. Ah, so uh, take turns. So Good. you take turns. It's a bit like driving from Sydney to Perth, mm. but, you know, you take turns. Um, usually you work together at the start of the case. As long as things are stable and you're just acting on things as they come up, then the, the registrar that's working with you will be senior, so they'll be, have no problem um, correcting what's going mm. on with that particular patient. If you're with a junior person, then you can't really take too much time out of the theatre, and if the patient becomes unstable at any time, then obviously the two of you will stay there. For me, if I'm doing a long case, I usually let the registrar go home about six o'clock, and then I'm reliant on somebody coming to give me a break. Oh, that's very generous so, of you. That'll be normally the um, evening staff. We have a registrar that starts at 1 mm. and and a fellow that starts at 12.30. So we do have um, people that work till late. And as well, obviously, there's a night registrar who mm. comes on at 8 o'clock. So we have two registrars and a fellow here um, until about 11. And then there's the night registrar and the fellow who's come on at 12.30 is essentially a first on-call person who's most of the time in the hospital but if they live nearby sometimes they'll go home if they're on with someone senior if they're on with someone junior then they usually just stay the whole night wow so it's pretty intense work yeah and you mentioned this analogy of driving from sydney to perth and it occurs to me that anesthetics is in a way like driving a car sometimes we joke about oh you know when it's an easy operation they're just there checking their social media and like lounging around but it doesn't sound like it's actually that it sounds like you're always watching the monitor if it's you know if it's a really intense drive like a really foreign country road that you don't know and you have to keep your eyes on doing things all the time that would be a tough operation and if it's a sort of easier road that you're familiar with you know it doesn't mean that you completely go to sleep and your car drives itself because we're not at that stage yet so it sounds like you're always uh, watching like a hawk and well, even monitoring. the most simple operation um, mm. you need to pay attention I'm a very oral person so I'm very attuned to changes in the sound of the monitor so beep, anything that involves not only the tone not only the tonality mm. but also the rate and the rhythm right. um, so any any changes clues me in straight away some people are very visual and need mm. to look at it I mean I'll look at it as well and I look at it probably every half a minute but I'm very oral so if it's a really straightforward operation mm. so an ankle fracture for example yep. on a 25 year old then it's not a huge challenge um, so you can sit there and vegetate to some extent, <laughs> but um, you still are aware yeah. and you need to be watching your patient all the time as well because apart from the monitor, surgeons also do stupid things. They get very fixated on the operation that they're doing. 
so the body part only. So I've had people, for example, the, the urologist last week brought his um, scope out, his ureteroscope, and actually stuck it on the patient's chest so that it was almost burning the patient's face. So you have to be aware um, all the time of what's going on. So you know, I just had to say, move the scope. You've put it on the patient's <laughs> yeah. face. Um, as a registrar once, I was doing an ENT list and the, my consultant had left the theatre and the surgeon actually leant on the patient's throat and obstructed their airway. Ooh. So you have to be aware of what they're doing as well because they, they do forget that there yeah. is a, actually a human attached to this yeah. body part that they're operating on. They get very, very tunnel visioned, which so, is good yeah. because you want them to concentrate on what they're doing, but um, that's why you need to be there. To keep the patient alive. To get, well, not only just alive, but uninjured. Mm, that seems important. <laughs> uninjured you your, from what? Yeah, other than what they have to, Yeah. All right. And what, what are the differences that you found being more senior in the department compared to being more junior? What, what is the change in lifestyle and workload? Uh, I think the workload, in some ways, it gets heavier as you get more se- become more senior um, because you get, ha- unfortunately, there's more politics, there's um, more admin. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. You just can't really avoid it. When you're junior, you um, are able to avoid that to a large degree. Um, so you're really only doing your work and doing your on-call. Mm. But as you as you become more senior in the department, uh, more outside clinical work um, tends to devolve onto you. Yeah, I know sometimes people have that impression that when you're a junior, you'll put in lots of hard hours, especially when you're a registrar and when you get to consultant, suddenly life will be free and breezy and you'll delegate everything. So it sounds like it's not completely that. Uh, I would say that life is better as a consultant than um, a registrar. First of all, you earn more money. Um, (laughs) Second of all, yes, you do have far more responsibility, but um, with that responsibility also comes a greater degree of satisfaction, I think. Mm. So, yeah. Um, The thing about anaesthetics is a lot of people work in a public and private setting. I think um, I would encourage people to always maintain a, a public role because that's where more interesting surgery happens. Um, you can work in a private clinic or a private day surgery and spend your time doing pretty mundane stuff, or a small hospital like Carina, um, where you might do laparoscopies and whatever, but it'll mostly be, pretty again, pretty mundane stuff. And you don't get major trauma or things that um, really challenge you, like you do in a... In mm-hmm tertiary setting like like St George for example. Yeah and speaking of challenging so the procedural skills part can be very exciting for some but could be frightening for some people. Is there ever such a person who is just not cut out for that who you know absolutely don't don't use your hands don't touch any of that just go away don't even touch that toaster you know. Most most people actually know that they're not Ah, cut out for it. I would say that most we have a pre-anesthetic year here and most people who want to do that already know that they want to do something involving a, a specialty where they're involved mm-hmm. and using their hands. Unfortunately, I think with, for example, emergency medicine, once people become consultants, they very rarely mm-hmm. get hands-on experience. And uh, most of the hands-on stuff is done by registrars. But um, certainly in anaesthetics, you're still using your hands for your entire career. 
Um, apart from the ob- things that people know about, we also do a lot of um, nerve blocks, spinal anaesthetics, epidurals. We use the ultrasound machine. People will do echoes. Uh, there's there's lots of mm-hmm. lots of toys to play with. Is it common for someone to say, let's let's say, have a burning desire to do anaesthetics, but just held back by the ineptitude of their hands? Or if someone wants it enough and can practice, is that good enough? I think that someone who was having a lot of trouble would find it far too stressful to oh, so just It would sort of yeah. change their outlook on it and they just wouldn't want to. Correct. Okay. Correct. I really think that someone who wasn't a hands-on kind of person, mm-hmm. if they didn't like doing that, or they found that really difficult, it would be far too stressful a job. It's already a very stressful job, don't, um, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's sometimes very very satisfying and one of the really great things about it is that everybody is your patient Mm. everybody you're not limited to an age or a type anything every single person you can be resuscitating a neonate one day and you can be um, anesthetizing a 103 year old the next day and everyone in between so everybody is your patient and we, we had a list last week. We had an eight-week-old baby on the list. So, no. And I think a couple of the other... I think the oldest kid on the list was three. So, you know, everybody is your patient. But if you're not good with your hands, that is going to be far too stressful for you. So I think you'd be giving that up way before. All right. So it sounds like people need to be aware of that. But also a, a good aspect is that range in patients. So it sounds like you always stay up to date with your skills and it's not just, I'm only going to treat four-year-olds and nobody else. Oh, no, you can't do that. Mm. Even at the children's hospital, you can be a paediatric anaesthetist, but you're still going to be um, anaesthetizing and being involved with mm. a range of people. So you'll be dealing with a neonate one day, but you might be dealing with a 100 kilo 16 year old the next day who's essentially an adult so yeah everybody is your patient yeah so some good variety there and what about in terms of hours uh well apart from really long cases as i mentioned <laughs> yeah um for me the most onerous thing is weekend on call because you're on call for 24 hours i'm trying to encourage people to split the on call uh personally i think we're grossly understaffed mm. on weekends overnight and it's almost impossible to not have to come in overnight as the consultant. So, for example, I did overnight, just the overnight part, from 8 o'clock in the evening on New Year's Day this year, mm. and I was here from quarter past 8 until 8.30 the next morning. So it was pretty intense. So it sounds like there's that on-call element, and it's not just, oh, I'm on-call. It's actually there is a high chance that I will be called in on-call. Uh, definitely. Mm. It's less now than it used to be, because we have a, a fellow who's, mm. um, who's here, who's, and a fellow is someone who's done their second part exam. There's two exams in anaesthesia uh, to get your fellowship. So they've done their second part exam. Um, they've finished four years of training. They're now in a fifth year of training, and it's a stepping stone to becoming a consultant. I think it's actually one of the most valuable years that you have in your whole training, yeah. fellow year. Well, speaking of training, how exactly does one get onto the anaesthetics program? Okay, so essentially you need to have a job. Like most things, you need to get an anaesthetics job. For some reason, in the last two or three years, it's become flavour of, I wouldn't say the month, flavour of the decade, (laughs) and it's become extremely difficult to get an anaesthetic job. We have two, sometimes three, first-year jobs here. 
nearly everybody will be have been through our pre-anesthetic year, the year before, um, or critical care year, as it's called. No exams or anything? How, how do you get onto that job? No, no, you have to get a job before you can do the oh, exam. okay. So you have to have done six months of anesthetics training before mm. you're eligible to sit the primary exam. The primary exam basically focuses on pharmacology and physiology with a bit of statistics and physics thrown in. You need to know a bit about physics, sorry team, but that's how it is. And um, the exam is now structured in a way that it's clinically focused rather than purely scientifically focused, but the emphasis is still on the science. Um, There's a written exam, which is 150 short answers in the morning and the afternoon I think it's 15 um, short answer questions covering those topics then if you get a good enough mark in those then you are invited to sit the viva the viva is four I think there's four vivas now um, which is set up a bit like an OSCE but essentially each viva goes for 20 minutes and covers elements of uh, of those things that I spoke of. Sounds like you can't fluff your way into this. There's no just guessing C for everything. It's actually short answers and speaking. Correct. Ah. Yes. Yep. Um, then the second part exam is structured similarly. There's 150 short answers and fifty. Um, sorry, 150 MCQs and 150 ah, short so answers. <laughs> you could just see. Yep. Um, and again, you have to get a certain uh, mark for that to be able to be invited to sit the viva. Um, and the viva takes place over one day now. They do medical vivas now immediately after the written. So many years ago when I did it, all the vivas were together, but now the medical vivas are held pretty much straight after the written, usually the weekend after. Um, There's, I think there's four, four medical vivas. So the medical vivas involve patients and also interpreting medical data and it's they're purely medical there's no anesthetic questions in there per se so it's looking at chest x-rays ecgs and people asking questions about them in examining patients it's not like a physician's exam because you don't have the time you have about maybe less or i think it's about eight minutes really to examine and ask a patient their medical history and then you'll be asked questions about it by the examiners um, then having got a good enough mark for the written and the medical vivas then there are the anesthetic vivas they're usually held in Sydney or Melbourne occasionally it's been held in Brisbane um, and people go through their eight vivas there wow. um, I think each one is about it's 15 minutes and again, uh, they're incredibly stressful. To this day, um, I can remember, I did my virus in 2004, and to this day, I can remember most of them. So that's how much... Thanks to their recurring that's nightmares. It, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people have this feeling afterwards that the college will contact them and say, sorry, we made a mistake and you didn't really pass. <laughs> It's that um, Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, and a lot of people have that feeling, so even years afterwards. And do you think that's just in this department or in oh, no, medicine no. It's, everywhere? It's everywhere. I think it's everywhere. But I think 
the I think particularly surgery and anesthesia, the way it's structured with very intense ex- two yeah. very intense exams, it's just you're kind of left with some sort of weird post traumatic stress disorder from it. <laughs> Um, there's that book Moneyball, which is about American baseball, um, and and how one of the teams, the Oakland A's, tries to use statistics instead of just picking players who looked good. Uh, and there's this kind of similar story there. One of the players who who was you know just a very junior player was getting picked by this team, and he at first didn't sound very excited to be chosen by the team. And the team's like, why wasn't he more interested? Does he have an offer from somewhere else? And it just turns out he thought it was one of his friends playing a prank and, and calling him. But once once he found out, he was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. So it sounds a bit like that, the slight imposter syndrome of getting yes, to the top and being like, oh no. Definitely. Yeah. Any, any cures to that or any advice? I don't think so. No. No, no, no cures. It's just... Just hide it and look like We're pretty swan. much all type 1 people. And so, um, yeah. Just show you no just weakness. put up with it. <laughs> all right. Now, how many years are we looking at with the anaesthetics training? Let's say um, best case scenario. Five years. Five years. Okay, so um, people do their junior medical years, two years, and then the five years. Ah, uh, no. Oh, So it's, you have to do a critical care year first. Ah, so... So you do, okay. you know, two junior years, then people will do a, a third year, mm. um, a critical care year, yeah. where they decide whether they really want to do it or whether they yeah. want to do ICU or ED. I think the critical care year here is structured into um, possibly two anaesthetic terms. Mm. I think there's one here in our department, one at Sutherland. Used to be one in Albury. I don't think they do that anymore, unfortunately, because going out to the country is always good, mm. good fun. And then um, ED, ICU, and then either one of, I think, cardi- cardiac, cardiology or paediatrics, okay. one of those. All right, and then after those three years, it's the five years. Yes, then oh. you apply for a job. Yes. Uh, it's quite stressful applying for a job now in the middle of the year mm. for a registrar position next year because you may not have even done your anaesthetic term in this department, for example, or in the department that you want to work in. So my advice to everyone is that in your junior years, just do the best that you can do because a lot um, counts on, on how you've performed rather than just your anaesthetic term in a particular department. Is there a limit on how many times someone can try? No, not at all. So what's what's the record, I guess? I don't know. There's a limit <laughs> on number of times you can attempt the exam. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so after that, it's like five times, no more. We, Correct. We've used to Actually, take your money. it is five. Oh, so for the primary, okay. it's five times. If you've attempted the yeah. primary exam five times and you've failed, then you do no no longer have an opportunity to do that. For the rest of your life? For the rest of your life. Oh, no. Mm. It's very expensive. Yeah. And I think that apart from the money, um, emotionally it's also would be devastating. To have failed it five times, mm. I think you're probably really look, barking up the wrong tree to keep wanting to do it. Or maybe maybe we need that limit to stop people from going on to the um, sixth time. That's definitely <laughs> true. Uh, that this is actually recently introduced. Mm, okay. um, not so much the primary, but certainly the second part. Mm. We had people that attempted it many, many times. Quite often there were overseas trained doctors and um, they'd be anaesthetists in the Middle East or somewhere. Um, quite often India. Mm. Uh, medical training in India is very disparate. It doesn't have, um, it's not cohesive. It doesn't have a, a central council that oversees all training. So you can get some training in India, for example, that is the equal of anywhere in the world, the equal of the United States or Western Europe, mm. Australia, 
no problem and those people don't have a problem passing but then you'll have people who've trained in a state where they're using textbooks from 1955. Mm. I'm not kidding, this is actually the case. Wow. And uh, these unfortunate people are really behind the eight ball. So yeah. they're trying to catch up from a position where they're really not in the race. And we had people um, trying many, many times. I remember a poor fellow doing the exam. I think he was doing it for the fourth or fifth mm. time when I did it. And he, he couldn't read an ECG. He was a fellow from the Middle East and had just trained in a system where he didn't understand ECGs and he still couldn't understand ECGs. Mm -hmm. So he just, there was just no way he was going to pass. Yeah. I don't know when ECGs were invented. Maybe it was before or after 1955. Um, <laughs> Hadn't been mentioned in its textbook yet. <laughs> maybe, but I just, probably where he was, they didn't have an ECG machine and yeah, um, can, he yeah. just never learnt to read them. But he was never going to pass. Yeah. So sounds like a piece of advice there is to never use a textbook older than you are. But since we're talking about differences in resources, and you mentioned going rurally, what are the differences practicing in a city hospital compared to out in the countryside? Uh, well, it depends where you are. Again, um, even in the city, you're going to do different things. For example, at Prince of Wales, than you're going to do at St George mm. or at Westmead, for example, or St Vincent's. Um, Prince of Wales is not a major trauma centre. St George is a major trauma centre, so you're going to get different case mix there. Mm. Out in the country, you're going to deal with everything that, that comes in if you're in a place like Wagga, um, Dubbo, cities like that. Um, they're reasonably sized cities. You'll deal with all sorts of trauma, and you are the first point of call, and you will get everything. I was a um, St Vincent's trainee, and we were sent to Wagga, which was really tremendous experience. And I actually did my first anaesthetic term in Alice Springs. So again, it was you, you just dealt with whatever came in. Um, you weren't doing major elective surgery. You weren't doing elective heart surgery or elective neurosurgery in places like that. But any kind of trauma involving those organs, then you would deal with it. Hmm. What's your most memorable case in your whole career? Oh. Good question. I'd have to think about that. Um, the one I'm most recently proud of mm. is a 98-year-old patient who was on home oxygen and is a Jehovah's Witness. So, and she actually had a terrible femur fracture. Ooh. It was a spiral, yeah. periprosthetic, awful fracture. And so, so no transfusions. So no transfusions. They bleed. Oh, she was also on an anticoagulant, ah, so of course. she bled a lot into her leg. Um, she went home, so I'm really proud of that. Or well, back to her nursing home, but mm. I was really proud of, of that case. How did you manage that one? Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> okay, so she didn't get a lot of anaesthetic. Um, basically, we can monitor people's EEG pattern, yep. which indicates how asleep they are. Mm. It's a thing called a BIS monitor. BIS just means bispectral index and it uh, gives a dimensionless number. Essentially, if you're over 80, if the number is over 80, it also gives an EEG pattern, but it gives a number over 80, there's a risk of awareness. And so you try to maintain it below 60 so that there's minimal, if any, risk of awareness under 60. But for someone who was 98, I wouldn't be that worried anyway. But um, we couldn't do a spinal because of her anticoagulation, the risk of then getting a 
hematoma in the spinal canal is also great. So she had to have a GA. Um, but what we did was give her minimal induction. So I think I gave her 10 milligrams of propofol, which is a very small dose. Oh, the milky that's, one. That's correct. And um, some other adjuncts, so a little bit of fentanyl, a little bit of midazolam. Um, her blood, blood pressure stayed stable the entire time. We did put in an arterial line and monitor her blood pressure every heartbeat. And we also did um, a fascia iliaca block, so which is where you put local anaesthetic agent. In this case, we used um, half a percent ropivacaine and uh, into the fascia iliaca space, and which is quite good. We used a big volume, so it spread along there, which meant that we could run this anesthesia, this anesthetic extremely low, um, maintain her blood pressure and oxygenation. Uh, so she woke up actually very comfortably, um, requiring no opiate, which is the other thing mm. we tried to avoid in someone with um, breathing issues. And uh, it all went very well. Excellent. I've, I've never seen a textbook where the index is, you know, look up, patient is 98 on home oxygen, has all these complications, and it tells you what to do. So how did you know what strategy to pick? Um, experience, I ah. guess. <laughs> I guess experience. So I have a lot to do with orthotrauma. I do an orthotrauma list every mm. fortnight. One of the reasons why I like it is because I get the entire age range. You'll get, you know a five-year-old that's come off um, the skateboard or the trampoline and broken their elbow, or you'll get a... The oldest person I've anaesthetised is 103, and that was on orthotrauma. And Falling then, off their skateboard? No, she... <laughs> I think she probably did fall off her skateboard, yeah. <gasps> wow. I think she came off her roller skates. No, she tripped over it. <laughs> she was actually a fit and well person, Excellent. living at home. Yeah, great. And um, actually just tripped over the a cord. Mm. So it was a very simple um, accident, but... Did well yeah, after, did by well. the sounds of it. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, I was most proud of the 98-year-old because she had so many comorbidities. But you will get a lot of patients with severe comorbidities. Um, I also do urology, and the patients on urology often have lung and heart disease because a significant number of them all have bladder cancer. And one of the causes of bladder cancer is actually smoking, so they'll have the other complications mm -hmm. associated with smoking. So what if things go wrong? What about the not-so-successful stories? How do you uh, Okay, you them? also get this on... Actually, get this a lot, obviously, in a major trauma centre. Mm. Um, am I allowed to say this on this? I was actually the person that intubated... Censored! 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 Better not put that in. Better edit that out. Bleep that out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I... Better not. Yeah, better put that. Yeah. Um, okay. So and they can bag out the prime minister, and that can get taken out too. Yes. Okay. No, that's fine. Um, so that was obviously not a good outcome, and was never going to be a good outcome. If you're shot in the head, you're not going to have a good outcome. But we do get patients here, as a major trauma centre, who aren't going to survive, and you know they're not going to survive when they come to theatre. They might have a heartbeat at that point, but despite everything, you know you're going to have a bad outcome. We've had some terrible, terribly distressing cases. We had a young woman who threw herself in front of a train with postnatal depression. I personally had to deal with a woman who self-immolated. Um, that you, you do see some terrible, terrible things, and I think that 
anyone who thinks that they're going to go into anaesthesia and it's all going to be wonderful, you do need to be aware that you are going to see some really, really horrific things. Seeing someone who's shot in the face, seeing someone who's self-immolated, seeing someone who's thrown themselves in front of a train, people who've been shattered, completely shattered from car accidents. One of my other most memorable cases was a young fellow who was hit by a truck riding his motorbike and then was dragged along the road under the truck. That was pretty horrific. That was really horrific. He survived. He actually survived that. So that was also one that I'm pretty proud of. And there's another one that I'm pretty proud of because it was something that I did when I was quite junior and also had a good outcome, I think, and the patient has gone around Australia giving talks about her um, recovery from this injury. She's a young woman that was out jogging one morning, was hit by a garbage truck, and they had to get her out from under the garbage truck. She survived. Um, And actually, that's something I'm quite proud of as well because I was actually quite junior at the time and really applying things that I'd learnt for the for the primary in a very concrete way that I probably shouldn't have at that stage in my career. So I'm kind of proud that A, she survived and B, she's now going around Australia giving talks, but, um, and she kept her legs, which mm. is what she wanted. It's a very good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it sounds like a big part of anaesthetics or what makes it rewarding is that you get to celebrate life. Like it's, it's a victory when someone walks out alive or is absolutely well absolutely but you will get patients that die Mm. there's no no doubt about it i think um the ones that are most distressing are things that aren't expected yeah for me um that would be a young woman who had metastatic lung cancer not because she smoked she was just a very unfortunate Mm. person who got lung cancer remember 10 percent of people with lung cancer aren't smokers and have never smoked but she came to theatre to have uh, um, what's called a talc pleurodesis to prevent a build-up of pleural yeah. fluid. Stick so the pleural stick, layers together. Correct. Um, and it was just purely palliative. It wasn't going to cure her lung mm-hmm. cancer. It was just so that she was, a, had, was able to breathe a bit more easily. And she just died on the table. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be a massive PE, mm-hmm. but um, she just died. So... Essentially what happened, she went to pulseless electrical activity. Uh, I lost the... I was standing right there because we were about to go onto one lung. They hadn't actually started the surgery yet. Right. We had a what's called a double lumen tube where you can ventilate each lung um, individually. So we were about to go onto one lung ventilation. So I was standing there with the clamp. You clamp off one, one of these um, lumens and suddenly lost the um, CO2 trace. And I actually thought that the circuit had become disconnected, which is usually what happens when you lose the CO2 trace. And then there was uh, the bellows, and I was thinking, but the bellows haven't collapsed. Normally the bellows will collapse on the ventilator when that happens. So I still had SATs and I still had an ECG. Then the stat, this is all happening over a matter of about 10 seconds. So I felt that I carotid and there was no pulse, so I just said call and arrest. And um, we got her back on her back did CPR. We never ever got um, a pulse back. Um, We tried to resuscitate her for about 45 minutes and then abandoned it. 
and uh, essentially a CPR did break the clot up to some extent but it just disseminated itself through the lungs and um, that was that really so that was that kind of thing can yeah. happen so hopefully quick and painless for the patient but still traumatizing but it's traumatizing yeah. for everybody else in the theater yeah. I think the most common episodes of this sort of thing people just dying is um, in ortho trauma as well and particularly old frail people and that 98-year-old, I was really worried about this yeah. for her, um, is when they deploy cement. So if they're doing any kind of a um, prosthesis and they deploy cement and the patient is old and frail, that is an extremely dangerous time. And I we probably get one or two a year where the patient just dies when they do that. So essentially what happens when the cement is deployed, it sets off this amazing kind of vasovagal response where the patient can just become asystolic or drop their blood pressure significantly and um, when you're very old and frail and that happens that can be enough of an insult for that to be the end so it would happen about once or twice a year so it's always a very fraught time with these old frail people when when the cement is being deployed and obviously we'll do things to um, make sure that, or make sure, try to prevent that happening, so turn down the, any kind of anaesthetic. And usually we run minimal anaesthetic for these people anyway. Um, give them a bit of a vasopressor, basically try and do our level best to keep their blood pressure up and their heart beating yeah. throughout this period. Uh, there was an episode a couple of weeks ago where the patient had a spinal, so no general anaesthetic, and when they deployed the cement, she went into rapid AF and dropped her blood pressure. Uh, so There's many ways to drop your blood pressure. There's many ways. So it's a, an interesting um, mm. phenomenon, the whole cement thing, but it, it is a fraught yeah. moment in the, in the whole proceedings. And it sounds like it must be very important then to explain risks to the patient and their family and whoever else is concerned then. Generally with the, for example, the NOF patients, mm. the neck of femur fracture mm. patients, that... Um, most of the families and the patients are aware that they're a high risk and essentially we do it for palliative reasons because we'll do we'll anaesthetize patients for their fractured neck of femur even if they're extremely unwell as evidenced by that 98 year old um, you basically can't nurse them if they're you're trying to get them through with conservative management can't roll them without pain they're in pain they'll get pneumonia and they'll die in a week or so if they don't get the operation but basically between a rock and hard place you either take it on board and just accept that this is the risk that they're all running the lesser of two evils that's right the lesser of two evils and basically that every study has shown that they do far better if they get the operation so considering how many neck of femur fractures we do or old mm. people with fractures that we do in this hospital, we would do at least one every day, sometimes several a day. So it's a relatively elderly population, um, particularly the, the Greek and Macedonian population are elderly and people from Sutherland who will be transferred up. So there's a lot of, lot of elderly people in the area and um, we do a lot of these operations. Sounds like mostly it goes okay, but for those 
unfortunate cases where let's just say euphemistically the patient is palliated a little too quickly what's your biggest tip for dealing with that kind of thing because I know the the doctor's mental health movement is a big kind of thing now um yes I think that we probably don't manage it very well in anesthetics uh, most people know that it's part of the deal in this department per se there's a lot of opportunity for debriefing it's a very collegial department everybody will come and help you if something goes wrong in theatre you only have to hit the red button and there'll be a million people there in no time to help you um, so in this department I think we're very lucky we're a very friendly and collegial department who are always willing to help our colleagues and are always willing to listen to our colleagues as well afterwards there's always the opportunity um, to talk to somebody I don't know if that's true of every department there are some in Sydney for example who have some interesting reputations but I won't name names <laughs> in a public thing in a public forum <laughs> all right so basically one of the tips is to try and find good supportive people in a nice work environment yes good. I think the nurses do it better they'll have they'll run debriefing sessions and formal debriefing sessions where they'll help their colleagues out but we probably do it quite well I think on an informal level here we also have monthly M&M meetings so that's mm. morbidity and mortality meetings so if anything disastrous happens people will present at those and unlike some departments again we're not a department that um, is into blame sometimes blame is warranted but we still don't tend to do that uh, but tend to try and support people and look at what can be improved and how things can be done better in the future and I think the M&Ms are kind of a bit like you know public confession to some extent <laughs> and um, a little bit cathartic Right. Without any death shaming. Correct. There's okay. no death shaming in our department. There have been a couple of episodes, quite infamous ones, um, where the person involved hasn't been able to present that case and someone else has presented for them because it's just been too traumatising for them uh, to have to do that. Um, but that we're certainly willing to do that as well. All right. Well, let's end on a slightly happier note than all this death and morbidity and mortality. Let's end with, let's say, uh, your three biggest reasons that someone should do anaesthetics. What are the three best things? The three best things are that you are always in control of the situation, even when you're not. You're like the pilot of the operation and you make sure that everything is flying right with that patient, despite everything that surgeon is doing to them. The other Thing that I like about it is I get to use my brain and my hands every day so you might think that other areas for example intensive care and ED you also learn these neat skills and that's true you do but I would I think that as a consultant you don't really have much in the way of hands-on um, whereas in anaesthetics you, you maintain that and the third thing is that I really like working in a team environment I really like it as I said, this is a collegial and friendly department and theatre environment as well is um, a really effective team environment and it works best when it's a good team environment where everyone's working together, the surgeon, the scrub staff, the anaesthetic nurse and the rest of the anaesthetic team, we're all working together for the benefit of the patient. That's actually a very satisfying thing. 
Excellent. Thank you for all your wisdom and advice, Dr. Murray. That's my pleasure. Yes. I hope you get something out of it and make sure you edit those bits about <laughs> bagging the Prime Minister. <laughs> yes, we'll make sure those come out. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much to our listeners as well, and we'll see you all in the next episode. <laughs>